Do we have expectations of our students or for our students? That is the question. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And you can subscribe to this podcast absolutely for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Cultures of Thinking is an educational framework that emerged from the work of Ron Richart and the Project Zero team at Harvard University. This episode belongs to an eight-part series where I delve into each of the eight cultural forces that, according to Ron Richart, we must master in order to truly transform our schools. My guest in the series is Simon Brooks, who spent years implementing cultures of thinking into his classrooms and now helps teachers introduce the framework in their schools. In this series, we'll take a closer look at each of the eight cultural forces with an emphasis on practical ways to implement the theory behind it all. This is part one, where we discuss the cultural force of expectations. Expectations. Uh, well, broadly put, can be uh, thought of as demands that we place on others, perhaps a, a strong set of beliefs surrounding future outcomes and anticipated results. And I've just taken that semi-quoted from Richard's book. And uh, we're talking about expectations of versus expectations for. Now, Simon, let me just run you through this before we get started. Okay. There's a couple of different ways that we can think about expectations. So if I say that I have an expectation of you, then there's an expectation that you will do this or that you will do that. And there's this sense that there's very much a command and control type approach to creating an environment. Mm. Now, that's something that I think is fairly common in classrooms, but there's a way of flipping that around. And we talk about expectations for, and the suggestion is that this happens at a much deeper level. What's going on with that, do you think? Yeah, thanks for the question, Colin. And it's it actually speaks to something for many years that I've been working on with, with teachers with whom I work. And one of the things I ask teachers to do is go away and do a little bit of research with their learners and actually ask some questions of their learners. And for a long time, I phrased it like this. I suggested that they go back to the classroom, they hand out a piece of paper, just a blank piece of paper to all of the students in their class, and they ask them a question. And the question would be along these lines, look, guys, I'm doing some research on the sort of teacher I am. I really want to elicit your thoughts. So on this piece of paper, can you write down what do you, what do you think are my expectations of you as your teacher? So that's the way I used to phrase it. And, and I was doing that for, for good reasons. I think it was really valuable for teachers to get some feedback from their students. I still think that's really valuable. Yeah. But I think the phrasing of the question, what do you think are my expectations of you as your teacher, in a way was leading those teachers down the garden path. So, you know, I, I think it was uh, in many ways preempting a particular sort of response because the responses that they'd get back quite often would be behavioral related. T students would write things like, um, your expectations of me are that I should arrive early to class, line up outside, um, wait to be invited in stand silently behind the desk until you ask me to sit or in a primary school classroom when I'm sitting on the carpet, sit with a straight back yes. at all times. <laughs> the straight back and crossed legs. <laughs> Very much so. Deeply attentive. Yeah. There's, um, there's that command and control thing coming straight straight away, isn't there? Absolutely. And I, and I think it was the phrasing of the question that led to that. And so as time went on, I thought about rephrasing this question that I was 
asking teachers to work with. And this was in part inspired by the fantastic work that comes out of Project Zero and, and particularly the works of Ron Richard and rephrasing it as you've suggested. So in, instead of what do you think are my expectations of you as your teacher to what do you think my expectations are for you as your teacher? And immediately there's a difference in the response that comes. And even that's interesting, I think, Colin, because it, it sort of suggests that it's actually the way we phrase the questions we ask that determines the responses we'll get. And I think there's, there's insight in that. The, the type of responses that will come back were very, very different. So students, in response to what do you think my expectations are for you as a teacher, well, instead of focusing on behavioral commentary, then it became more dispositional. So they'd be saying things more along the lines of your expectations for me are that I become a thinker or, yeah. I, or I become an analyzer or I become a curious person or, you know, I become I, I'll be I'm somebody who loves learning. I'm a scientific thinker. Things along those lines. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's a shift from expectations of is towards me as the teacher, whereas expectations for is actually I have a view of what I would like you to or what you could be in the future. So it's kind of shifting the balance back towards the student. Absolutely. And then those students start tapping into the messages that they're receiving from their teacher all the time about what their teacher wants them to become in consequence of the time that they spend with them. That's an interesting, That's... It's an interesting idea, isn't it? I'm sorry, I just need mm. to, I'll just reflect on that for a second because I guess sometimes students might have this expectation that they just have to go to school and, and, and do the work and, and learn stuff, whereas it might be quite unusual for them to think that their teacher might actually have their best interests at heart. Absolutely, and, and really powerful. And even the asking of that question, to see their teacher asking that question sends a message to those learners that the teacher cares about who they are becoming in consequence of the time they spend with them. And, and that's a really powerful message to send. How do you think the focus on grades and assessments affects the emphasis on expectations of? Yeah, well, I, I think it's what it does is it communicates an expectation that it's achieving academic success that matters rather than the becoming a thinker. And that's something we want to avoid. I think it also speaks to this either-or mentality that can sometimes exist in education, both with teachers and with learners. You know, it's either I perform academically well or we engage in these critical and creative thinking activities, but not always the, the second is in service of the first. So I think that's the danger there. If we focus on grades and assessments exclusively, if that's the message that we're sending, if that's what really matters, then it does become expectations of rather than expectations for. I think that also relates back to the whole idea of what a teacher might think of themselves if, they're, if the grades and assessments of their students aren't up to scratch. So there's kind of a self-perpetuating thing here. My expectation continues to be of my students because of the grades and assessments that I have to administer. And if the grades and assessments don't come up well, it's going to mean that they look bad and I look bad. So it's kind of this um, spiral of expectations of. So there would be quite a lot of work involved in trying to spin that around to expectations for, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's be understanding here. I mean, it's it's very difficult to break away from that mentality for many teachers because they're tuning into the existence of that mentality within the educational system. Um, so to break away from it can be challenging, but there's undoubtedly ways of breaking away from it. 
Ron Richard mentions what he calls five belief sets when it comes to expectations, and that these can either inhibit or facilitate a culture of thinking. Let's talk about a couple of them, and we'll start with uh, learning versus work. Okay. I love this one because talking about learning to me seems to be so obvious that it almost hardly seems to be worth talking about. Because yes. isn't that what you do when you go to school? Isn't that what a teacher does? They facilitate learning. But the irony is that the language that we use in classrooms, and we're going to come to language in another discussion, but the language we use in classrooms is often focused entirely around work, like get the work done. Mm. And in one sense, you could even sort of zoom out and say it's like we're bringing up a generation of workers. How did we <laughs> let that happen? Uh, I agree. And I think the first thing to acknowledge is that that definitely does sometimes happen. But the good news, I think, Colin, is we can we can change that. And um, if I may, I'll, I'll, t I'll talk a little bit about some work I'm doing with one particular school, if, if it's do. OK. Yeah, please and, do. And, and to name that, and I'll name the school because they're doing wonderful work. It's North Ride Public School, which is a, a government school close by to where I live that I'm working with at the moment. And hello to our friends there. Hello, North Ride Public School. And look, the work I'm doing with them is I'm helping them create action research projects. And what this entails is helping the teachers of that school to identify the big questions that really matter most to them in terms of their students' learning and the thinking that their students do. And after spending a bit of time with them, you know, they've identified some pretty powerful questions that speak back to this question that you're asking me here, Colin, about the, you know, the difference between learning and work. So I'll share a couple of the, of the questions that they've come up with. There's a kindergarten and year one teacher at North Ride Public School whose question is, how might I help my students become deeper thinkers in service of developing richer understanding? The teacher is considering this question and, and thinking about, and here's the key word that's in that question, become, that they want their students to become something in consequence of the time that they spend with them. Uh, a teacher in year five, six, their question is, how can I foster independent thinkers who show initiative in my classroom? And it's, it's the same thing again. It's, it's about what children are going to become after their time that they spend with that teacher. And then the, the last one I thought I'd share is, is another kindergarten teacher. Her question is this, beyond busy work, how can I ensure that rich thinking opportunities are woven into the fabric of my teaching and that students are not just participating in activities. Yeah, that whole busy work thing, that's, uh, I think that's a really tough subject because if you look at a school, they're just, you can't help but think that they are simply just busy places. Absolutely. And these teachers, these teachers are changing this scenario that we're talking about. They're looking at finding ways to move away from just have students engage in busy work towards actually focusing on the learning behind that work. They're taking these questions as a focus for a whole year. You know, they, they all understand as well that there's perhaps no silver bullet answer to these questions. You know, if there was, then I think everybody would already be doing it. But by, but by the end of the year, what we're hoping is that they'll have made significant progress with these questions. It seems a bit strange to me, though, that it's 2016 and we're starting to ask these questions now. I mean, presumably we've known about this kind of stuff for decades, right? Yeah. I look, but... Here's the thing, maybe we shouldn't blame ourselves too much for this. I mean, it's almost, in, I suspect for us as teachers, it's almost impossible to resist. There's, there's a, a famous TED talk by Ken Robinson uh, that I know many of your listeners would be familiar with, which is called Changing Educational Paradigms. And uh, in that talk, Ken Robinson talks about what's in the gene pool of education. 
and suggests that there are a lot of things in education that date a long way back, you know, may, maybe back to Victorian times and before. And if they're in the gene pool of education, they're, they're pretty tough to resist. Maybe a focus on work rather than learning has, it, has been in that gene pool. Mm. And it is from that gene pool that teachers still draw this notion. So tough to resist, but we can do it. Those teachers at North Ryde Public School are resisting it. They're making the focus on learning rather than the work. And so I know that all teachers can move forward with it if, when they put their minds to it. Some people might say, well, hang on a second. It's great that those teachers are doing that, and I, I commend them for doing it myself. But, um, I mean, think about this. Over the last few decades, uh, the human race has done things like uh, transplanting hearts. It's uh, gone to the moon. If, uh, that is, of course, if you believe the story. Um, we've invented, uh, you know, jumbo jets. We've got mm. uh, crazy engineers over in Silicon Valley designing rocket ships. Our friends over there at SpaceX. Hello, Elon Musk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're workers. They're hard, hard workers. I mean, some a, a, a critic of this conversation might say, well, what's wrong with work? Mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with working hard in service of developing a deep understanding. I mean, that's really an important message for children, isn't it? nothing comes easily we've really got to work at it yeah um i guess it's like marriage i mean i'm very i'm very i'm very happily married to my wife but i'm also <laughs> mindful of the fact that if i want that marriage to continue blossoming and coming to fruition that it's something i have to work at i think that might be the hardest work is it not <laughs> well possibly i mean i don't want to go too far along those lines Colin. um but look, working at, working at things in service of making them more effective is really important. So I'm not understating the importance of work. Children, I think, really need to understand that it's, it's through hard work and through developing resilience and bouncing back from times of difficulty um, that we develop character and that we develop lasting understanding that comes from those times. I guess what we're talking about here is we don't want to go down the lines of work for the sake of work. Yeah, you know, the work work to just keep us quiet and busy. What primary school teachers and, and that teacher I'm working with terms as busy work, there may not be much learning that emerges from just busy work. It, it sometimes reminds me of what used to happen in Victorian workhouses, uh, where a lot of the um, a lot of people in society who were struggling would end up. And one of the jobs that they used to to give those people in Victorian workhouses was just to smash up rocks, huge, great boulders, and to smash, smash them up into tiny pieces. And ironically, that often didn't serve any purpose. They weren't doing that for any reason. It was just to keep them busy. Oh, dear. Is that in service of anything? You know, how can we move our classrooms away from work for the sake of work towards work in service of learning? More from my discussion with Simon coming up in just a moment. If you'd like to listen to all of the episodes, you can check out the Learning Capacity archives. You can find it by searching for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. Let's talk a little bit about choice. Richard makes the comment that when uh, the purpose of the task is on learning, that teachers are more likely to offer choice. When, whereas when it's uh, more about work, there's less choice and uh, the teacher is exerting a greater amount of control. Now, for, for our teachers listening to this, who might be trying to discover where the tipping point is between working and learning, like let's, let's say they actually thought, okay, there's something in this and I really want to try and do this. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to go into my classroom today 
and make the switch from a working mentality to a learning mentality, what's the first thing I would say to people? Yeah, this is an important question. And it, it speaks to something that I talk about with teachers a lot. There's often a, a misunderstanding in cultures of thinking pedagogy that if we use routines, if we apply routines to the classroom, then we've got a culture of thinking. Hey, presto. Yeah. Um, routines are definitely one of those cultural forces, and they're really important and really powerful. But coming back to your question, and perhaps when we're, we're thinking about where to begin with, a re, with focusing on learning rather than work, I'm wondering whether it's other cultural forces, such as interactions that we have with students, the language we use with students, the opportunities we create for students that can communicate that message that it's the learning we're interested in, not just the work. And so on a, on a practical level, I guess it's some of the, the language that we just use with students whilst they're learning. I mean, perhaps I'll, I'll stand beside a student engaged in a task and I might ask something like, by completing this work, what are you learning right now? You yeah, know, actually or, ask them. Actually say, what do you think that you are learning? Absolutely. How does this activity relate back to the big question that we know that we're exploring at the moment in this unit. How is doing this activity right now extending your thinking in relation to that big question? I mean, there's another another powerful question is, just what's the point of doing this? Yeah. What's the point of doing this homework? What, what's the point of, in, of, of studying this topic? If we're in an English lesson, what's the point of English? <laughs> There's a, there's a great book, actually, by Guy Claxton, and the, the, the subject of that book and the title of that book is What's the Point of School? Uh, I think that's a really powerful question. When children ask those questions, what's the point of doing this? So long as they're not asking it in, a, um, in an aggressive tone, like, what's the point of doing this? Yeah. But what's the point of doing this? That's a, an amazing question for young people to ask and, and important for us as teachers to think about how we might answer it and for, our, and for our, uh, we ourselves to have conviction in what the point is of doing it. Actually, I had a student ask me that the other day in, in class. I said, look, imagine that you're going to design a project. It's entirely your own design. And that the, the idea of the exercise was to try and get to them to see the relationship or the importance of the relationship between an idea, the finished product, and the visual representation of the product. In other words, the drawings, mm. because it's, it's hard to build a house without a set of drawings. Mm. And, and the student said to me, am I going to make this? And I said, well, maybe. And, the, and they said, well, what's the point of drawing it if I'm not going to make it? And my response to that was, I thought, well, okay, well, I got, it's a very good question. And yeah. let's see if I can get some thinking out of, this, out of this situation. And I said, are you planning on visiting Antarctica? <laughs> and, the, and the student said, no. Nah. And I said, all right, um, what about Kenya? And the student goes, no. Nah. And I said, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, what's the point in knowing about those places if you're never going to visit them, mm. interact with them, or want to do anything associated with them? Yeah. And I was very surprised. There was just a long pause. And I could see, you know, and, and this is a, a student who talks a lot. And to get a, yeah. pause, to get a pause, I thought, all right, something has happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's you've obviously asked a probing question if the pause is there. So let's talk about, um, and this relates uh, closely to understanding versus knowledge. And uh, David Perkins is an author we've talked about before on the show. And he's got a nice way of putting it. And uh, he likens understanding as knowing your way around a subject. And I quite like that too. How would you explain that idea to a teacher? 
Yeah, I think this connects to another framework that emerges from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, and that framework is the teaching for understanding framework. Um, in that particular framework, activities are not described as, as, as activities, but rather as performances of understanding or performances for understanding. Yeah. So when we have students actually engage in something, we ask ourselves, well, why is it that we're getting them to do that? What's, what's the purpose of this activity that they're engaged in? If it's a performance of understanding, then it may well be an opportunity that through that ac activity, they can demonstrate that they have understood something. And that's particularly valuable. But it's the phrasing of performance for understanding that I particularly love, that by engaging in a particular activity, their understanding is enriched. To use Perkins' language that you, you mentioned there, they're finding their way around the subject. In an attempt to engage in the task, they're developing and enriching their understanding. That would be my way of trying to explain what Perkins is describing there. Understanding is knowing your way around something. So let me throw a spanner in the works here. Is Google mm. a part of that problem? As in, <laughs> is Google a part of the problem of people not feeling or seeing the value of knowing their way around something when they can just say, look, I don't know that, bang, I'll just Google it. I don't think it needs to be a part of the problem, but perhaps it'll be part of the solution. Okay. Perhaps it's what what children do with what they find on Google that matters. I mean, it's a wonderful and vast repository of information. Yes, and um, Google, Google are our friends. I just want to reinforce that. It was a hello, Google. Yes, wonderful. You know, <laughs> It's, it's such a great repository for children. There's so much information there. But I guess it's what they do with the information that they find from Google that matters. If it's just being um, recipients of that information, then that is useful up to a point. But then when they take that information, they try to make sense of it. They try to understand it through a performance of or for understanding. Then that's where that information in Google can just augment the development of their understanding. I don't necessarily think that just because it's there, and I do, and I have heard um, other speakers talk about this, that it's that it's perpetuating a spoon feeding culture. Um, it might do, but great teachers know that they can help their young people draw on what they find on Google just to enrich their the development of their understanding through what they get them to do with it afterwards, through the thinking opportunities that those teachers marshal their students towards. What do you think about the idea that understanding then can never be complete or absolute? What do you think that means for teachers? I think that's probably the greatest gift of, of all for, um, for learners and for teachers. There's a concept I, I actually talk about a lot with teachers around this idea of understanding never being complete and absolute. And... Um, the, the phrasing that I give to this, and it's, and it's absolutely linked to cultures of thinking pedagogy, but, it, but it's an English term. It, it, for me, I call this living in the muddle. <laughs> okay. Talk <laughs> us through can, that one. <laughs> look, how, well, how can we as teachers create a muddle for the students with whom we work? Create a confusion. Create a situation when they actually don't have absolute understanding of something, that it's far from complete, that they've got elements of understanding, that parts of it make sense, but a lot of it is still confusing. If we can, as teachers, build situations like that and have students live in that muddle, live in the um, lack of absoluteness for as long as possible, then what we're doing there is we're creating a powerful in incentive for them to carry on learning. 
an example of that that I sometimes that I sometimes share with teachers that I that I work with is something is something called the Monty Hall problem. So the the Monty Hall problem is a is a is a um, probability um, based problem, and it's um, it arises from this notion that, that it, there's a game show. Yeah, it's the one um, where you get to win a Ferrari or something, isn't it? That's right, exactly. There are three doors. There are two goats behind one door, and there's a uh, and behind the other door. That's right, the goat and the Ferrari. That's it, and we're and we're asked to pick a door. Once we've picked the door, then um, the the host Monty Hall shows us what's behind one of the other doors, which is a goat. Then we're asked whether we should change the door choice or stick with the door choice we have. What's interesting in this problem is that the intuition suggests it doesn't matter whether you stick or change, but actually probability dictates that you should change. The great way of doing this is to present this problem to young people and say, look, here's the problem, because it doesn't seem like an intuitive response. Mm. But rather than as teachers, rather than jumping in and trying to solve the problem for them as quickly as possible with our absolute knowledge of mathematics, what would it be like if we let these young people just live in the muddle of that problem for as long as possible so that their understanding is not complete, it's not absolute, it's it's an understanding that's um, that's growing. If we keep them in that space for as long as possible, then that's in service ultimately of developing really rich understanding. So so I guess in answer to your, your question, Colin, I'm saying that if understanding is never complete and absolute, well, that's a pretty wonderful thing because that just drives us as humanity towards developing richer understanding. I wanted to ask you about surface versus deep learning and. Uh, uh... To, to confess, I actually have a, qu- a question written in front of me that says, how deep is deep enough? And as soon as I wrote that, I just couldn't get out of my head the Bee Gees song, How Deep Is Your Love? Perhaps you could just um, give us a, a brief rendition of that. No, I won't do that. I'll spare our listeners the, uh, the pain of that. Um, but I just wanted to get that clear. I'm not asking how deep is your love. I am actually asking how deep is deep enough? But mm. the, 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 the bigger question I've got is, I think deep learning is important. But what if my students don't? How do, mm. I, how do I overcome that hurdle? What's some, practically, when I walk into a classroom, what are some of the, the words that I can use, the language, although that might be segueing into our, into our next discussion on language, but what, what can I do to try and communicate the importance of deep learning? Let me ad- address some of the ideas behind that, and then I'll respond to that next part about what we actually do next as teachers. Something interesting, and I'll, I'll go to John Hattie first. Um, John Hattie, in his book *Visible Learning*, he he argues that a balance between surface and deep learning is important. Um, and with utter respect to John Hattie, although and I I don't agree with all of Hattie's thinking, I do suspect that there's merit in that idea, and that sometimes some surface learning and deep learning together can be powerful. If surface learning is knowing and applying a set of facts, but deep learning is cognitive engagement with that, with those facts, um, connection making, analogizing, evaluating, those type of things. Perhaps sometimes there's space for both. And, and a good example of that, I think, would be long division, which okay. isn't always which isn't always taught as much these days as it used to be. I don't know if, if you remember learning long division, Colin, there's, there's, a, there's a long and elaborate process for long division, which involves pulling numbers down to the next column. Yes. Um, and I think that often when children learn how to do long division, they're following a process, but they don't know why. 
I'd say that's probably universally true. <laughs> They're doing it because they've been shown that that's how you do long division. And for, and for many years... I was wor- I was concerned about that, and I thought, well, they should know why they're doing it. But a few months ago, I had a conversation with a with a fantastic maths mathematics teacher, and he said to me, and he helped me reevaluate this. And he said, well, actually, maybe it's good that they learn that process through surface learning first. Maybe it's good first that they just learn about how the process works. Yeah, so they just they get the, me- the mechanics of it first. That's right. That they get the mechanics of it, they can then do it. So long as at some point in the future, once that the mechanics of the process have become real and practical and easy for them to replicate, at some point in the future, the teacher says to them, oh, yeah, so why do we do it like this? Yeah. What does it mean to pull the number down from there to there? What's, what's the reasoning behind it? So I think in terms of surface and deep learning, sometimes surface learning first can be important. So long as ultimately we move towards a space where deep learning comes to support that surface learning, to explain why the surface is that way. Let me finish with this quote by Rose Duckworth and Raymer, which also comes out of uh, Richard's book, and then I'll ask you a, uh, a final question. Okay. It goes like this. Independent learners are internally motivated to be reflective, resourceful, and effective as they strive to accomplish worthwhile endeavors when working in isolation or with others. Even when challenges arise they persevere. If I as a teacher wanted my students to be independent learners, what's something that I could change or work on about myself today that could help to make this happen? I'd start with curiosity there, I think, Colin. And I talk a lot about independent learners and, and, and a, lot of, a lot about self-directed learners. But the question behind those questions is, well, why do students want to be independent? Why would they want to be self-directed? And the answer there is that whatever it is that they're being independent with or self-directed about, they need to care about. They need, they need to want to learn about it. So the question that underpins that for, for teachers is how can we ignite that flame of curiosity? In consequence of the time that we spend with our learners and what they're doing in the, class, in the classroom environment that we're creating, how we how we engineering a situation where they really want to learn, where it feels like an exciting thing to engage in. And there's a routine there that um, I've developed over the years. It's a routine called what happens next. Yeah. I think this is a really good example of what I'm trying to talk about. So let's imagine we're a history teacher. Um, we've taught a, a, about a moment in history up to a particular point. Um, perhaps we're looking at Winston Churchill. And we're teaching about the whole set of circumstances in history up until a moment when Churchill needed to make a decision. We might be working on that in, in, class, in a history classroom. And we might stop at that moment and we might say to our learners, OK, so what do you think happened next? What do you think Churchill did in this situation? Yeah. But not tell them what he did next. Let's first get them speculating based on all of the events, the factual events that took us up to that point. And one student might say, oh, I think this happened next. Another student might say, oh, no, I think Churchill did this. Another student might say, oh, I think, yeah, no, 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 he wouldn't have done that. This is, this is what he would have done in that moment. Let's hold the students in that muddle for as long as possible. Because at the, at the core of who they are, they'll be thinking, I really want to find out what Churchill did do next. Yeah. You know, we've been theorizing, but now I want to find out. There's an energy in there and 
And how can we as teachers try to string out that energy for as long as possible? Let's keep them in the muddle. Let's not solve things too quickly. And then when we finally might share what Churchill did next, there's an energy there too. Yeah. Because then they'll be going, oh, no, I can't believe he did that. Yeah, or, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was right. Yeah, that was a sensible decision. And it's through routines like what happens next, how do you know, that we foster curiosity in our classrooms. And maybe that's what we need to do if we really want young people to become independent learners. It's been great to speak with you, Simon. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Guy. You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about neuroscience-based language and reading programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to know more about the Cultures of Thinking framework, then you can visit ronrichart.com or the Harvard University Project Zero website at pz.harvard.edu. And if you'd like to know more about my guest, Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.